Hey, y'all. You're listening to How I Got Here with Drina Whitfield, the podcast that dives deep into the unique journeys of some of the dopest entrepreneurs, business leaders, and personalities I know. I'm your host, Drina Whitfield. I created this podcast to have real, honest conversations about the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Grab your notebook, sit back, relax, and catch these gems. Today, we are talking with Stephanie L. Young, whose work spans from the White House to NBC Universal to BET Networks. Stephanie is a social impact strategist, the current executive director of When We All Vote, a nonpartisan nonprofit launched by former First Lady Michelle Obama, where her mission is to change the culture around voting and to increase participation in each and every election by helping to close the race and age gap. Stephanie, you may not remember this. But we were both featured in the Ebony story years ago for oh, their wow. top 10 Black women in politics. I have no clue how I made the list, <laughs> <laughs> but I was honored and surprised to just be even included, especially alongside you, who was already making waves in the political world. Yeah. You know, I've been a distant cheerleader of yours since then, and I'm so excited for us to chat today. So thank you. Thank you, Drina. And I'm so proud of what you're building. This is so special and so needed to have more Black women and women of color leading in PR. So thank you for all that you're doing. And I'm happy to be here with you today. Well, thank you. I'd like to take it back all the way back to when you were graduating high school. I like to ask the question of when you were graduating in your high high school yearbook, when it asked where you see yourself in 10 years, what did you write? So this is funny. I actually wrote that I wanted to be a White House CNN correspondent. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I was a, I, I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to be a TV journalist and I knew I wanted it to be in political journalism as well. So I kind of hit the mark in a different way. I was just inside the White House as opposed to outside. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's what it was. So at that young of an age, what sparked your interests or love with politics? Well, you know, I would say my parents were really my first teachers in politics. We Mm -hmm. sat around, we had one TV in our house because I couldn't have a TV in my room or anything like that. And it was always in the news. And we were always talking about what was happening in the country. My father was pastoring when I was born. uh, And then he became um, a bishop in the AME church. And he eventually became the senior bishop in the AME church. He was always politically involved. Like as a young child, he pastored one of the oldest black churches uh, and largest black churches in Atlanta, Georgia, Big Bethel AME church, which is actually on Auburn Avenue, just down the street from Ebenezer. And I mean, every mayor would come, you know, from uh, Maynard Jackson to Andrew Young to Bill Campbell to, you know, Nelson Mandela came when he was freed in 1990 when he did his American tour and he came to Big Bethel. The Kings would always be there. John Lewis would always be there. So I grew up kind of at the feet of like Black political movements uh, and understanding kind of you know, our, our history in that space and also our power in that space. And when I was eight years old, uh, my dad became a bishop in the AME church and we had the opportunity to move to South Africa, but this is 1992. So this is like the transition between apartheid and democracy. So I Mm -hmm. got to see democracy birthed in South Africa at like 10 years old. 
and experience it really as a South African child because I was in school there, kind of witnessing this this transformation and rebirth of a nation. I literally remember writing or drawing the new South African flag, learning the new South African anthem, you know, learning about all the different regions, anything that was changing, the language, the official languages went from like, I think Afrikaans and English and maybe like, maybe it was Kozunzula, I can't even remember, but it went to like four languages to like 11 official languages. So to, you know, to be more inclusive of all the people. So it was then I think that I recognized and realized people power. And then I also recognized that I had, you know, a responsibility to to do this work in a weird way. Uh, and then it became it became a passion. But what I what I've enjoyed most is that I try to make it fun and I've I've tried to be creative in this space and innovative. And but I know that, you know, my background with my parents and all the things that I was exposed to as a kid really really kind of pushed me in in those directions. And then the last thing I'll say is like the journalism piece, you know, that, that seed was planted randomly at space camp. We won't even talk about that, but (laughs) I was like, Oh, I think I want to be a journalist like at 12 years old. But when I was in high school, I was able to intern for the superintendent's office and they had a, like a public access TV show. So they gave me the opportunity to do like reporter work, anchor work when I was like 18, 17, Uh... And that's when I think I realized, oh, I, I really like this. I want to do more of this. But it, it obviously changed once I got to DC. And how long did you live in South Africa? For four years. So 1992 to 1996. Oh, wow. And so when you graduated high school, where did you go to school and, and was your major poli sci? No. So I graduated, well, I started high school in Atlanta, but then my parents, my dad was moved to Texas to be the Bishop of Texas. So I graduated out of Dallas and went to Hampton. And my major was broadcast journalism. I thought that I might do a political science uh, minor, but you know, there's a time where you have to kind of declare all those things. And mm-hmm. I remember, I remember vividly thinking, all right, let me go ahead and declare a minor. And then I was like, never mind, let me take a nap. It's bad, but that's exactly <laughs> what happened. <laughs> so I, I wanted to, to minor in political science, but I, I just majored in broadcast journalism. And so you graduated with a degree in broadcast journalism. What was your first job outside of um, graduating college? Was it in politics or was, did you really go into the journalism industry? I tried to go into the journalism industry. I remember I... Yeah, I tried. <laughs> I did. Don't you, you know, back in the day you had to do... You still do this now, but now you can like just text it to someone. But we had resume tapes, like hard VHS, VHS tapes that you created during your internships working at like at television stations. I worked in Jacksonville, Florida at a television station and in Norfolk, Virginia as well. And I got an internship upon graduating, but it was six months. So it felt like a job at the news hour at Jim Lehrer and PBS, now the PBS news hour. And if you know that show, it is politically anchored. Mm -hmm. It is all, I mean, yes, there's other special interest stories about different things, but like the heartbeat of that show is politics and you're working in DC and Gwen Eiffel, who happened to also be an AME, she helped me get an interview to be an intern at the news hour. And they called them them desk assistants at that time. And I remember I talked to her on the phone briefly and she said, look, I'll help you get an interview, but you're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember thinking that that made an impact on me because I felt like, oh, I have some responsibility here in in a much different way. Did I think she was handing me an internship? Absolutely not. But she she did make it clear that this would I would have to get this on my own merit. 
And I got the job. And once I got the internship, four months into that, I was hired as an editorial assistant, which is like someone who's watching all the Associated Press footage from all around the world and like pulling different clips for the show uh, and writing like little short segments. I saw some crazy things on APTN. <laughs> if anybody <laughs> knows about the Associated Press feed, it's, it, it actually gets crazy. But I remember when I got hired, because it was four months in, she came to my desk and she was like, I am so proud of you. And I was like, thank you. And in that moment, I realized I did do this. Like, yes, yeah, she opened the door for me, but I, but I worked hard. And I proved that I should be there and I excelled. And that was when I think my view of what I should be be doing changed because mm-hmm. that was around like 07, you know, when President Obama came on the scene in a real strong way as a senator, like 06, 07. Um, and by 2008, I was like, I got to go. I can't be balanced. There's no two sides. I don't want to, I don't want to report on both sides. I knew I wanted to be a part of that new movement. Uh, that was happening in this country about hope and change. And I couldn't figure out necessarily how to do it clearly. So I had a, I, I did a roundabout way getting into the world, but it worked out for me because it gave me even more experience to get into kind of like political communications from there. Mm-hmm. And what was that roundabout way? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, t- technically you can be a 20 something year old person and go work on a campaign. Like they are consistently looking for good talent. You just got to know, you got to know somebody, right? Mm -hmm. To say that I only, I didn't know anybody on the Obama campaign, but at the same time I did, my dad was considered a faith leader. So he was in touch with all of them, but instead I ended up going to, I just thought I didn't have any experience, but that's, that's what campaigns love. They love people with no experience to come on and do a lot of work. And I didn't know that at that time. So at any rate, I got connected with Jamal Simmons, who is actually now Vice President Harris's communications director. And he was very good friends, or he was, he used to work for Alvin Brown, the first black mayor of Jacksonville. And my parents lived in Jacksonville at the time. And he connected me. And I told Jamal that I really wanted to get in political communications. I I had to harass him. He didn't meet with me like for months, but finally when I met with him, He's like, I want to help you. A job opened up at Rock the Vote, which is hilarious considering what I do now. Mm-hmm. And it was an, it was like a communications associate position. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I will say I did not get a lot of support when I was there. I had to figure it out on my own and make all the mistakes and say crazy stuff to the New York Times and have it quoted for me to be like, oh, you have to say awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I did all the weird things. and I, But it was a good grounding space for me to mess up and figure things out. and And also kind of see what it's like to be a black woman in this space. I mean, I remember vividly that my boss there, who was basically the head of communications, you know, wasn't interested in supporting me and helping me and mentoring me and and molding me. She just wanted me to get it and had no patience or or energy for me. And I had to figure it out on my own. And I Mm -hmm. did. And, you know, I built, you know, some sort of rapport and reputation, a little, just a little reputation uh, for myself. And then I, I got called to go over to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee once President Obama was elected into office in 2009. And I, it just, everything kind of took off from there because now I was really in politics with that, uh, working with that committee. It sits in the same building as the, the DNC and it, it does all of the congressional races uh, across the country, obviously focused on Democrats. But it was there that that I got my first opportunity to be a real spokesperson on a congressional race. And that was in Memphis, Tennessee with Steve Cohen, who represents a majority Black district as a Jewish man. So I moved to Memphis for a couple of months. And yeah, after that, it was just 
I had a different job every two years. Every two years. But wait, yeah. let's take it back to like your your time at Rock of the Vote. You yeah. said like your boss at the time wasn't necessarily interested in like helping you like mold you or mentor you or kind of give you a roadmap on yeah. how to succeed in that position. So what, like, how did you do that? What did you do to like make sure like you, you still came to work every day, yeah. did your job, performed at your highest ability and still got the work done, even though, like you said, you made tons of mistakes. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I think I had to... I had to kind of dig deep. <laughs> and what mm-hmm. I mean by that is like, I knew I wanted this. I knew I wanted to learn how to do this work. I wanted to be in her position. So regardless of what timing she gave me, what energy she put into me, I watched her. I listened to how she talked to reporters on the phone. I looked at how she wrote things. The one thing that's always helped me is that I've always been a, a good writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I was trained in journalism, broad, broadcast writing, I think is like a perfect, it's perfect for press release writing mm-hmm. as well. Exactly. So, like I, I knew that um, I al- already had like a heart for news um, and journalism. So I was steep into all of that or deep into all that. So I, I, I like, I took it upon myself to almost I don't want to say train myself, but like to dig in as much as I could, to be as smart as I could be. And I think in part, I was trying to prove to her that I was worthy of her attention. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And really, it just helped me to be stronger and better in the long run. Uh, And I remember there was an an intern who came to Rock the Vote. I can't remember what her name was. Well, we won't even tell anybody's names. Right. (laughs) Young white girl, and he loved her. And I remember being jealous of like mm. putting all her energy into her. I'm like, she's an intern. I actually work here. Like, what are we talking about? Um, and she would take, certain times she would take things away from me and give them to her. Like, oh, she can handle that. And like, mm. they were like together at the hip. And that's when I recognized and realized as a black woman, like she looks at her and sees herself. She looks at me and does not know who I am in any mm. way she and so she, her, uh, her interest in me is very low. Right. And then she sees someone who's like, Oh, you remind me of me. You're so cute. Let me put everything I can into you. Like that just fueled me to get out of there, honestly, but it fueled me to get all that I could get and really dig in on my own and, and figure things out. And I'm proud that I, I did that and that I did not allow that experience to deter me from continuing my career in political communications, but rather it fueled me to get to better. And it empowered me to like, want to even prove to her and others that, you know, I could do this with or without you. And you were, you were like 20 something then, right? Yeah. I had to be like 23, 24, something like that. See, like fresh out of college still. Yeah. So like the fact that you were even, cause I know most 20 somethings would probably go in the corner and cry Oh, or yeah. like quit or have a panic attack or whatever, especially in a position with an organization like that. Yeah. So I know that was, I was disheartening. That was disheartening. But the fact that you were able to like put on your girl, big girl panties yeah. and like kill it and show and prove is everything, especially, I mean, I've been in those instances, right? Where you've had a boss that, you know, knows you can do the work, but for some instance or for some reason, they're just not a fan of yours and don't want to help you build and grow, but then they bring in a young white counterpart of yours and um, they're, they're giving them everything. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, I don't know where either of them are. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I mean, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's good because I'm like, I have a niece who's in her twenties and she's young in PR and I get her phone calls all the time about this happened or that happened. I'm like, girl, this is what happens. And it so, is like work is not always going to be this linear, beautiful moment. I mean, I didn't have a black woman be my boss until I was working in the white house, mm. like in 2015. I had to, you know, I had years and years and years to go before I got there. Yes, when I worked at the Congressional Black Caucus, I worked with my amazing friend Angela Rye, and and she was she was technically my boss. Yeah, so I won't I won't shade Angela on that because she was my <laughs> boss. Like we're like sisters, but you know, to have like it, it took me a while to 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 have those experiences. So I you had to like persevere, and this area of like work has not been diverse. It really isn't Mm -hmm. that diverse. Yes, there's more people on the scene now, but like it isn't diverse. And I think sometimes I can see it. It's like a cycle of like when you as a black person walk into these rooms and you might feel some type of, you know, like, okay, I'm the only one. You feel a, a greater sense to prove yourself. You don't necessarily get what you need. You can tell they favor other people over you. That's discouraging. Mm-hmm. And then what it does, I feel like, is create this like unconscious like like fear of like, I can't mess up. I can't. I got to have this tight. I got to be right. And then like you start second guessing yourself and second guessing your voice. And then you make one mistake and they're like, oh. Mm-hmm. Everything's working out. We have to figure out how to layer you, or we have to figure out how to move you after this, or we have to add somebody else in. It's like an overblown like response to just being a human, which is everybody's gonna make mistakes. And it's it creates this like cycle of like you feeling like, well, maybe I shouldn't be here. Yeah. And I really feel like that's why there's not that many people mm-hmm. that play in these roles or and that are in political communications because it's hard and it's it's hard to to really build community and i think sometimes mm-hmm. even amongst ourselves like the tokenism piece of it all is real too because when you do have oh i, I can speak for the community which you you know we can't, we're we're a very diverse black community exactly. <laughs> But, you know, when you are kind of that voice in the room and you yep. know that's a guarantee for your position, it's it becomes competitive in weird ways that, you know, we don't we don't always if I'm seeing it more now, we don't always support each other in the way and hire mm-hmm. each other in the way and like cover each other in the way in which they do. And say that. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> so it's like like when that it's just like a, it's a really it's an atmosphere that will create the same kind of outcomes over and over and over and over again. So that's why I'm grateful for people like you. I'm grateful for the lifelong friends that I've met in this space that recognize these things. And we have put forth a conservative, conservative effort to like make sure that as more black women get into the political communication sphere or just comms in general, that like we're creating space for each other. We're hiring each other. We're supporting each other. And it's not about excluding anybody else, but we you need that protection in the, in the workplace. And you need that person. You can say, hey, I really don't get this. Can you help with this? Mm-hmm. Just They do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay? And they give themselves opportunities over and over and over again. You can fail up 75,000 times. It doesn't matter. But with us, you know, there's a different, there's a different litmus test. So that's why our community is so important. Mhm. You know, and and hearing you say that, I mean, I wish I had that community when I was 
in politics because I didn't. And, you know, you know, coming into this world as a young black girl, folks are looking at you like, one, how did you get here? Two, do you even know what you're doing? And three, let's just throw her out there and see what she can do. Right. And then the moment she doesn't swim the way you want her to swim or she swam in the wrong direction for a little bit, it's like, oh, I don't know about her. It's like you can't. It's like all trust is lost immediately. Exactly. And then you're, you're doubting yourself. Yeah. And they do it to, and they do it to black men. Yes. As much. So it's like, it is, it's a challenge and it's, it still happens. It's almost like you need a comms support group. (laughs) (laughs) That's true though. Yeah. I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but you know, politics can be, it's it's extremely tough and it can be cutthroat. And it's especially so when you're working with a principal or leader that's in the spotlight and, you know, everyone's kind of clamoring to be around them, to work with them. They're coming for your spot. So how how did you maintain a sense of work-life balance throughout all of that? Yeah, well, I'll just be honest. I didn't have it really. Um, when I, <laughs> I think you know, and now that we're living in this more like wellness era of life, where everybody, <laughs> I got to take some me time. Me time is real time. You know, I love all that. I'm, I'm down. Um, I didn't grow up in that era. I know you didn't either. <laughs> me either. I'm like, what? Okay. Like, I didn't get to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, look, I think the the further I climbed the less balance I had. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, vividly remember like when I worked, I don't know, maybe at the D-Trip, at the DCCC, or even when I was at the CBC, yes, things got, you know, they were hectic at times, but I remember going to like brunch on Sundays, like going to church and then going to brunch. And like, I could sit at brunch all Sunday and like, just have a beautiful day. And I, I don't even know what I was thinking about. And I would go home and I would just do whatever I wanted to do. And then work started on Monday. That changed. <laughs> like, I still can't go to brunch normal. Like, I'm sure like, I need to go home and do some work. But anyway, it's challenging, especially in presidential politics. And that that is a much different level of energy, of work. I, I remember literally going into the office, like, just so that I could start Monday off strong. I'm like, I got to go in a little bit on Saturday and probably a little bit on Sunday. So that I can clear off my out my inbox as much as possible, so that mm-hmm. I can start Monday strong. I mean, look, my left eye twitched for like a year. That's really weird, but it did. Nobody could see it. I could, I could feel no, it. No, but that's the stress. That's the stress. That, that is the stress. And you know, it, it was. I mean, I, I remember being in moments, and you know, your body really does respond to stress. Like it, it my body acts yeah. activates. And like, if something went wrong or something happened, like I remember sitting at my desk and like my whole face would get hot. And I'm like, I think I might explode. Am I about to explode right now? Like I, I actually could explode. So, I mean, the stress is, is real, but what I do do recognize is that I had to put in that hard work during those time, that time I had to make those sacrifices of like maybe hanging out with my friends and doing some of the things that I really wanted to do in order to achieve and get to you know, learn more, be more available, get to the next, you know, level and be, be ready for the next opportunity. And it it is like the crucible. You kind of go into the fire, you're, you're in the fire for a while just to go to the next level. So I don't think you should 
consistently work at that level. But I do mm-hmm. think sometimes it requires it. Growth requires it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I am a little nervous about in saying is I believe in work-life balance fully. Like now I'm able to say, okay, I live in Los Angeles because I want to. Also our work, it, we have a lot of work within the creative community. So it makes sense for me to move here and live here. But I can tell you like in the afternoons, because I work a lot on East Coast hours, I can go work out. I can water my plants. I can go for a hike. I can meet with my friends. Like I can, I can do those things, but it's almost like I feel like I've earned it too at the same Mm -hmm. time. Cause you put in that work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when we do work hard like that, like if you are in presidential politics or you get, or you're high up at your corporation or wherever you are, and it requires um, some sacrifice for a year, it's worth it in the end. It is because it, it will help you honestly outwork other people. I, I can tell you this, like when, when you think about a marathon or you think about runners, right. You know, if I go out there and run right now, I'm probably going, going to stop in like five minutes. <laughs> I don't even know if to five minutes. Cause Look, that's more than you'll last longer than I will. <laughs> Cause my running is not good right now. But if I go in the gym every day and I'm running every day, right. Like I can run faster and I can, I can sustain. So I can outwork anybody. I know that. Like I have the stamina to do it because I did it at such a high level and, you know, probably in terrible <laughs> time management ways and all of those things. But now I have the ability to like run farther, run stronger, run smarter. And so I think that there's, you know, that, that parallels to like, you know, work, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to think about work almost like a marathon. Like when, when are you able to kind of up the speed? Can you up the speed? Can you maintain where you are? But, you know, don't get me wrong. Like balance is extremely critically important. I lost my dad at the beginning of 2019. And Mm. the blessing in that experience was that I was at a place in my life where I said, I got to focus on this. Like my dad's sick. I got to focus on this. And I was able to do that until he passed. He got sick and it was like seven and a half weeks he passed. So, but I I was there. And I was fully there and I was not, you know, trying to do 75,000 different things at once. And I'm so grateful for that. And don't get me wrong. I think back to like, wow, I wish I would have, you know, or maybe I shouldn't have done this, or maybe I could have taken off there. there. Yeah. I think about Mm -hmm. those too, but I know that, you know, my parents were always very supportive and always kind of, you know, with me in that. And it just depends. It depends on also, you know, what's in, what's important for you, but this a long this is a long way to say that like work life balance is of course important you cannot give if you are depleted right if you're burnt out it doesn't work and you have to make sure you take that time but that does not negate the fact that there will be times where you have to put in the work in a way in which you might not want to and it's okay but you know you, you got to be prepared you got to be prepared to do that at least at some point in your career so that you're preparing yourself for the next level Exactly. Look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take me back to the to the Obama era. Yeah. How, how are you tapped to work with the administration? So I went from the Congressional Black Caucus as a communications director there to the state of Florida as the deputy communications director for the state, which is a battleground state. We didn't. We didn't, we didn't have a communications director though. So I was like, what? I'm still the deputy, but anyway, it's fine. <laughs> You're like, it's me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, where is the communications director? No, but at any rate, it was such a great experience. My father and my parents were there, you know, lived in Florida for eight years. So I felt like I knew Florida. My sister lived in Tallahassee and 
if you know anything about Florida politics, you got you gotta know Florida. You gotta have some roots there. So working hard there, we won the state. I remember we worked. This is when I by the time I got there. We were already working weekends, which means you don't have a weekend. I know that's unheard of. <laughs> I worked for 17 weeks straight. Mm. And because I remember that was the first time in my life that I wasn't able to go to church, <laughs> which is kind of oh, wow. And I, I, I counted the weeks just because it was like crazy. I mean, going literally going to work every day. I wasn't sick one day. I traveled the entire state, all, all of those things. And you know, it was so funny on the campaign. Everybody was clamoring like, oh, I want to go to the White House. I want to go to the White House. So if, oh, if you know this person, you're going to the White House. Or I know this person, I'm going to the White House. I didn't talk about that. I focused on my work. I fo- focused on the state. I focused on my job. And at the end, I was like, wait, where am I going? <laughs> <laughs> and like they, they send out all of these like jobs for you to support you going forward. And luckily... Um, I was blessed to still have my place in DC. I didn't have to really give that up. So I knew I was going back to DC. I went to the new, not new there. That's my first job. I went to work back on Capitol Hill as the national press secretary for Stinney Hoyer, who was the Democratic whip at the time. He's number two. So he's right under Nancy Pelosi. He's mm-hmm. a majority leader now. And I was working in the whip's office. And that was a great job because I was working for congressional leadership, which gave me the opportunity to be on the House floor for really important votes and, you know, really know the Democratic caucus and really understand, you know, how Democratic leadership works on the Hill. Obviously, I had the experience from the CBC and that's that is, you know, a caucus. So that is like a leadership level, too. But it's different when you're working, you know, kind of for the party. And what I was able to do is create relationship with more folks, you know, at, inside the White House that I already kind of knew, but like now I had more interfacing and more more interaction with them. And this is a funny story. Before I went to the Congressional Black Caucus, I got an interview to be a press assistant at the White House. And I went and I sat down with Josh Ernest, who became the national, well, became mm-hmm. the press secretary for the president. And Josh told me, he's like, you know what? I think you're too, you're too experienced for this job. I think you go do what you're doing at the CBC. I think you can come back at another level at some point. And I was like, what? No, I'll be a press assistant. This <laughs> <laughs> assistant's right on the Air Force One. They travel. <laughs> they do, they do all, they have all the things. It's so interesting. Like, and yes, it's a lower level, but you can work your way up. And I was like, no, I'll work my way up. I don't mind, you know. <laughs> Go be the communications director for the Congressional Black Caucus, which was the best uh, advice. And I'm glad I did that. But I remember after the caucus meets, like all of the Democratic members meet like on a certain morning for breakfast. They talk about all these issues and all the fights and all the things. It's like closed press. So sometimes the press secretary comes to the White House to talk about here's what the president's going to talk about this issue. And this is how we need everybody to kind of like work together. Right. So one of those meetings, I chased Josh out of the uh, room. (laughs) And I said, Josh, do you remember me? <laughs> I was like, I interviewed with you to be a press assistant. And now I'm Stanley Hoyer's national press secretary. He's like, oh my God, Stephanie, yes, I do remember you. Let's talk. I think I talked to him the next week and I was offered a job. I was offered oh. a new job. So like it, 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 the way it worked out was, was exactly the way he actually said. And even right before that, I, I interviewed to be the, I think the comms director for uh, African-American press at the White House. And that didn't work out. A colleague of mine got that job and I remember feeling a little like bummed about it, but it wasn't my job. And I got it. I 
you know, after I saw Josh, we had that conversation. It accelerated really quickly. They asked me to come back and be the associate communications director. And basically what that means is that I handled all of the rollout plans for any domestic policy announcements involving the president. So I think it's a good lesson to say, you know, uh, there are doors that close, there are doors that are there that aren't really open yet. But, you know, if you keep working hard, if you keep focusing, you never know how those opportunities kind of come back to you and how you're more prepared to take them. Mm-hmm. You know, coming in at a more senior level than I would have even have anticipated was was really exciting for me. And I, and I, I would be mystified to mention that I did work for the presidential inaugural committee, which also lended support in me building relationships kind of with inside the administration. I love that because it, I mean, it just showcases like one, it's about relationships, but two, it's also like a closed door right now is in a closed door forever. Like you, you beat that thing down. You you (laughs) ran them out the room. It was like, Hey, remember me? I'm back. (laughs) I did. did. And I, I didn't know what his reaction would be. And, you know, to be fair, some people might be like, whatever. And others are, are like, yes. So I think, I mean, from the lessons that I've learned is that you got to take chances. You have to take risks, be that running someone out the door, talking to them politely, not scaring them, um, <laughs> or be that taking a job, you know, like away and, and moving or doing something that you're, you're, you know, not really sure of, but scared to do because that's honestly where the, where the growth happens. And I know people always say like a closed mouth doesn't get fed, but it, it is true. Like someone might've met you, thought you were great can't remember your name for whatever reason, doesn't know where you are. And so if you get the opportunity to see them again, you you should say something. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Don't shrink. Yeah. 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 So talk to me about that first day walking into the White House as part of a a member of the comms team for the Obama administration. What was that? What did that feel like? Oh my, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I was a nervous wreck. I remember I fell up the stairs <laughs> walking into the West Wing. I was like, this is great. <laughs> I like skinned my knee. It was like really dramatic. Yeah, they have a meeting in the press secretary's office with the communications director, deputy communications director, press secretary, all the deputy press secretary. I mean, like it's a huge meeting and you're all kind of clamoring around this office. You're talking about the news of the day. You're talking about what he's going to say at the podium later. You know, it's just all the things that are moving and they introduce you. And of course, you know, you're looking around the room because you kind of know some people you kind of don't. And I mean, I knew, I probably knew the majority of them through campaign life, but it was just, it was me. I'm thinking about the black people. It was just a few of us. Wasn't many of us. And I was, I was excited. I was unsure of myself. I was Mm. used. I was like, I want to be honest. And I think that like, sometimes we think that we take we have to take a job that we know everything about, uh, and that's just not true. Like I, I was trying to figure out what does success look like. I still didn't really understand. I understood conceptually what you wanted me to do, but I didn't really understand it. And so I was just trying to figure it out and trying to fit in. And and to be fair, I was probably trying to still seek for like some weird approval of like, yes, you you should be here. You deserve to be here. So I probably had some sort of a Imposter syndrome. Imposter like, what am I doing here? Um, mm. I, that is, and I don't like to say I have regrets, but the older I get, I'm like, yeah, there's some stuff you're going to regret. Yeah. 
It just is, you know, like, and you, you got to do different next time. I wish I trusted myself more. And I recognize mm. like I'm bringing so much to the table in a different perspective, a different voice, different experience, different relationships. You know, I should be here. And I think that the White House is so traditional and regimented, meaning that like you come in, you got to learn the culture, right? And there is a culture, which I probably still have on me today. Like I still kind of work in that way. And I knew I had to get adapted to that really fast. But I think I was so focused on like, how do I understand the fundamentals, right? Get adapted to the culture, get some sort of like approval to like, you know, endorse the fact that I'm here (laughs) so that I can And I finally got a hang of it. And I finally started trusting myself. And I finally started trusting my voice. And Things changed after like when that happened in a major way. And also I stopped completely attributing my value to what other people thought about me Mm. and recognizing that, you know, there's just some people that you're not going to like, they're not going to like you, you're not going to, you know, work well together. But, you know, I just think, I think as young people, sometimes we get caught up on those things that just don't matter. But the the beauty of the entire experience is like working with a group of almost strangers. And yes, there's people you know, and they become family. You're working together towards a mission, like a shared goal. There's something that's so special about that, that I can't, you can never recreate that experience. And I would be lying to say that that was not to date, you know, one of my, the best opportunity I've had, the best job I've had, you know, I got the privilege too to to leave comms for the first time and go work on the Office of Public Engagement with Valerie Jarrett. And I remember taking that leap out of, you know, traditional communications, going into the Office of Public Engagement, which is basically public affairs, which mm-hmm. is really communications. It's it's just that you're not talking to the press every day, you're talking to the people. Yep. But but you are creating an echo chamber for the press. You are creating um, events and you know moments that are anchored in press. It's just a different way to communicate, which made me an even stronger and better communicator because of having that experience, because of being able to talk to like all the heads of the civil rights organizations and every you know leading African American in this country. You know the exposure to like how power. I already knew how powerful black people were, but like all the spaces and places in which we live and breathe in this country and all the power that we have and the collective power that we have, like I, I was sitting in the middle of, of all of that. So I don't want to, I don't want to diminish how beautiful the experience was, but because of like my, the, the opening of it all, mm-hmm. you know, cause it was, it, it was something I had to grow into, but it was, it, I mean, it, it was really the best time of my life thus far. I know the best is still yet to come, but it was. I mean, I, I got to create the last Black History Month uh, for the president and for the first lady. And being kind of the last, doing all the last stuff, the last Black stuff for the first Black president. Exactly. There's, there's just nothing like that. And there's nothing like that feeling. And I remember we, um, for Mrs. Obama... I had the dream of like having a master dance class at the White House for 
I mean, I wasn't even really a dancer. I like did gymnastics as a kid, but uh, I was like, <laughs> we need to bring, I mean, we need to celebrate. Black History Month is about celebrating who we are. And there's a tendency in politics to be like, let's talk about how far we've come. Yeah. Let's, we shall overcome. Mm-hmm. Let's go somewhere. And it's like, okay, n- how about we celebrate our culture? And that's what I was trying to do. And I'm sure that came from like my history mm-hmm. growing up in dancing the the National Black Arts Festival and and being an AME where like it's all about being black and like so like I wanted to feel like we were celebrating blackness as, instead of memorializing like our journey. Yes, we need to talk about that, but yes, let's celebrate and let's have fun. So I brought in 50 little girls from the DC ages ranging I think 6 to like 14 and we had Debbie Allen Virginia Johnson of Dance Theater of Harlem. We also had Mae Jemison, not Mae Jemison, that's an astronaut, Jesus Christ, sorry. <laughs> uh, we had um, Judith Jamison from Alvin Ailey, Fatima Robinson. And my my vision was like, how do we show the, the, the transition of the African-American experience from being on the continent to, you know, the period of enslavement to the period of freedom and opportunity and access. And we showed that story through dance to these cute little girls. And it was, I mean, I had to pitch it to the first lady. It was, it was a thing. Like, and I had to tell people why this was an important thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, but it was, it was such a joyful moment to see those kids with like no teeth uh, at the, on the top of their mouth. (laughs) Obama looking at them perform with their parents and we had African drummers. Um, well, really, they're black people, but you know, we had African drums for the African dance. And these kids were practicing under the portrait of Abraham Lincoln in the East Room of the White House. I mean, like, there's just like the the visualization of it is there's nothing like it. And I remember one little girl; her name was Sojourner. Like the fact Aww. that her name, and they called her Sojo, and. <laughs> We had an accident and I remember we were in the green room. Sorry, Sojo. She had an accident. We were in the green room and we were changing her clothes. And I was like, I don't think there's ever been a little black girl changing her clothes in the green room (laughs) in the East Wing of the White House. Like, so it it was those moments for me that like live on. And obviously like there was so much gun, like police violence happening at that time. So I was in, I was a part of all that. So like I went from like, Philando Castile's funeral to like planning an event like that, you know, mm-hmm. to pulling together like the old civil rights leaders from John Lewis and C.T. Vivian to like, you know, Brittany Packnett and other Black Lives Matter activists to meet with the president to like sitting in a, I think it was a six hour meeting with the president and the his task force on 21st century policing after George Wood and Clint Flando Castile to talk about like, what can we do? So it was such a diverse and rich experience that taught me change is hard. Change is slow, Mm -hmm. but we can, we can all play a part in it. I love that. And I I honestly hope you're extremely proud of the work that you've been able to do. And just even you being able to be in that space. Cause I, I know you mentioned like on your first day, you were dealing with a, a bit of imposter syndrome. You had to learn how to fully trust yourself and like really understand like, why am I here? What am I going to do here? What does success look like? And I yeah. mean, you have the results to prove it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I hope that this, a part of this story is encouraging because I think because of social media, especially now we have this like idyllic vision and version of what we think like 
work should be. And it is a series of like growth and emotion and being uncomfortable and all of those things contribute to making you better, growing you up and creating an even stronger and better work product. And I do think it is sometimes easy to kind of fall into like the humdrum and, and the confusion and like, you know, and get caught up, you know, and the drama of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And like, look, I I could have stayed in comms and I thought about it. And I remember I had one like bad day and it was not even a real bad day. It was like a fake news bad day, but like, (laughs) like it was just a day that I was like, Oh, I don't know. And I see those days will bring you down. Yes. And I literally said to my, I like sitting at my desk and in the office, the white house. And I said, God, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And I kid you not that week, my friend, Heather Foster called me and said, Hey, I'm leaving. Do you want to take, do you want to take my job? And I said, wait, what? (laughs) I work really fast. Um, (laughs) I was so fast. And I knew, I, I knew that I was like, of course, why would I not take the opportunity to work with Valerie Jarrett and work on her team mm-hmm. learn from her and see her work and really kind of be a part, a different part of the story. And I'm so glad and so grateful first that Heather, you know, thought about me, but also that I got that opportunity and I, and that I took it and I didn't say, you know what, I've never done anything like this before. And, and to be very honest, I took a pay cut to go to that job, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was, which in retrospect is kind of weird. Um, it is really <laughs> weird. But, but that's what it was. And it, but it didn't matter to me because I knew that I was going to gain a new skill and I was going to gain, you know, a different type of an opportunity that would hopefully, you know, change the trajectory of my life and my career. And it, it did just that. And I could have gone to OLA, which was the Office of Legislative Affairs and work with members of Congress. But I was like, I've done that. And mm-hmm. I've had those relationships and I'm so grateful for all of them. And I go back to the Hill now and I'm like, dang, I, this was a really great time of my life too. But I recognize that this was a new space that I needed to be in. So my advice is that to anybody who's like considering, you know, like switching it up, switch it up because the more diverse experience you have, the more you can, co- you can come to the table as a leader because you you have perspective. Mm-hmm. And I would not have had the perspective that I have now if I did not have that time, if I didn't build those relationships, if I did not, you know, help to build those moments and lead these relationships really on behalf of the the president and and first lady, which is which is hard <laughs> to do, <laughs> but it but it was worth it. You currently serve as the executive director when we all vote. Yes. Just talk to me a little bit about the initiatives of the organization, how you even got tapped to join Mrs. Obama under her leadership for this org. So I started at, well, I left the White House and went to BT for about a year and worked with Deborah Lee, which was great because I got to learn and see firsthand how a media corporation works, what they decide to put on air, what they don't. And so that was really a real awesome experience before I went over to NBC Universal Cable Entertainment to help them launch a campaign that ended up being internal. But during that time, like I think because I, and I mentioned this earlier, when you work at the White House or on a campaign, it's like so mission driven. And you guys are all like working together towards one mission, one goal. And like that energy is contagious and it is addicting, I think as well, because it's bigger than you. And there's just a different energy at work. I think that I miss that Mm -hmm. when I'm in the corporate space 
because it wasn't like that. Yeah, I made some really great friends, had great relationships. I'm not, I am not dismissing corporate America in any way, shape or form. (laughs) I think that, you know, I still would go into the private sector at some point, but I think that I, I, I just felt like my journey in this space wasn't finished. Obviously, Donald Trump was the president of the United States. He was a reality TV show host. I mean, what was happening? <laughs> um, and so I just, I remember laying on the beach. It's going to sound so crazy. Uh, after the hip hop awards in Miami. And <laughs> this is why I love working for corporate America. Cause you know, you don't have to pay for anything when you go to these <laughs> Whereas when you work in politics, you have to be like, let me pay with my meager salary. And hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, I'm laying on, on the beach outside of the W hotel where I was staying. And I was just like, this isn't for me. Mm. It's not right now. This is not for me. And I, I need to do more. And I just had that nagging feeling. So my a friend of mine who was working on developing this with Valerie and Mrs. Obama called me. His name is Kyle and asked me, he's like, hey, can you come over and be the comms director? And I was like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though I knew I wanted to to change and transition soon. I was like, no, I don't think so. And then he's like, well, at least can you help with the rollout? I was like, okay, I'll try, I'll try to do that. I when I was helping with the rollout and building some some opportunities for partnerships with media organizations uh, or companies. I was like, wow, I like this better than what I'm doing right now with, with the NBC work. And so I found myself splitting time. I became a, a consultant and I, I consulted half time. And then finally I was like, fine, I'll be the communications director. So, <laughs> fine. Uh, and then also to be fair, Valerie called me. I was like, look, we really need you. And I was like, <laughs> hey, and here I am. Like, this is the longest job I've ever had in my life. And <laughs> And I was not, I did not anticipate staying here this long. I, I anticipated helping kind of get it started and off the ground. But, you know, when my dad passed, I think, you know, there was a lot of, I, I needed some time to figure things out. And they were so great and gracious and keeping this door open for me. And then it was 2020 all of a sudden, like time has moved so fast since like, I would say 18 to like now it's just sped by for at least for me. But it has been an incredible experience to talk about civic engagement in a much more, I think, in a different way. We're trying to make it interesting. We're trying to make it, I hate the word cool, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it relevant and fun. And we're all about infusing culture into our work or being a part of culture. Like I want you to turn on, you know, a TV show and when they reference you know, a fundraiser that they were doing, like they just said on Blackish, it's about when we all vote. Mm-hmm. Or you're in the car and you're listening to the Steve Harvey morning show and they go, oh, we need everybody to check their voter registration status. And they say, when we all vote, I know that like we're, we're winning <laughs> um, and that we are, we're getting into the, the cultural zeitgeist of what people are consuming, what they're watching, what they're listening to, what they're reading. And, you know, like I, I can't, really diminish what I'm about to say in any way, shape or form, because it's real, like our democracy really is under threat. Mm-hmm. So now, now really is the time for us all to kind of figure out what, it, what are the ways in which we, we want to contribute? Like, you know, is it just voting or do you want to volunteer or do you want to use your own creative platform to figure out how to, to get into this work? So we're, we're trying to do it different. And I really do feel like we're, we're making great headway. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff that you guys have done, especially during uh, the pandemic. And I also saw the stat that you, through the work that you've been doing, you've been able to register and record over 500,000 voters, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 
Yeah. So in 2020, I mean, we had an explosive year. I mean, we were able to pivot so quickly because we were digital first. Mm -hmm. And with being digital first, meaning like we're registering people digitally, even our volunteers, if they register you on the street, they're going to say, take out your phone and go to womenwheelvote.org. Now get registered. So we were able to like take that moment and I, I would say blow it out of the water because you know, it was like one small thing happened that I felt like led to it all. We were trying to figure out how are we going to engage people to volunteer, to text voters, to do all the things we need them to do now that we're in this like pandemic. And we knew that couch party was trending on social media mm-hmm. because people were sitting on their couches. And so we said, why don't we do a couch texting party? We'll call it couch party. And D-Nice was just doing his quarantine. So I asked him to DJ and tell, ask people to get register, registered or register other people while they listen to him during our couch party. So we had a whole training um, with everybody like on a Zoom. It was a, it was a professional Zoom. <laughs> and then we went from that Zoom to that couch party and 27,000 people at that couch party checked their status or got registered. And wow. that is thing about voter registration, that's a really big number. And I was like, okay, so we're, we're really onto something now. And what that showed me was that if we are in the moment, right, whatever's yeah. happening, Versus, you know, D nice. It doesn't matter. Love and hip hop, Real Housewives. I don't care what it is. How are we tapping into these moments, and how are we reaching people where they are? The Roots Picnic, all of these different spaces and places we we inserted ourselves in because we knew that we had to go where the people were, and because of that work, you know, over five hundred thousand people came to WhenWeAllVote.org, either got registered, checked their status, and the beauty of it all is that you know, the majority of those people voted. Whoever registered with us, over 80% of them actually voted. So wow. all of the work that we are able to do, not to just reach you where you are, but get you registered or get you involved with volunteering. We take you from that registration process all the way to the ballot box. And now we have created opportunities for you to take that, you know, that your vote and go further and advocate for the issues you care about, like voting rights, reproductive rights, whatever it is that you care about, we're teaching people how to make their voices heard on those things consistently and not just when the house is on fire. So what's next, especially as we're gearing up for midterms and the 2024 election? Well, we are heading into our first ever Culture of Democracy Summit, uh, which is the first time we're bringing together a cross-section of industries from tech to entertainment to music to uh, corporate America to talk about what is our individual and collective role in expanding and protecting democracy. Uh, And so we're so excited about creating this platform. My hope and goal is that this is the South by Southwest of civic engagement. Yeah, where we have music festivals attached to it. We have to talk about democracy consistently because when we don't and when we're not engaged and involved, we get into spaces and places like this where voter suppression bills are passing all over mm-hmm. this country and people's rights are being taken away. So we know we have to we have to get to the game and we have to make this a part of what we do and a part of culture. So we're excited about that. It's going to be with Mrs. Obama in Los Angeles, uh, and there's a virtual component to it as well. And the midterms, I mean, the midterms are here. So we got to start voting out there. There are so many primaries that are happening. Um, If you follow us at when we all vote, you can find all of our, I guess, 
warnings of like when you you can't register anymore for primaries um, or all the deadlines and all of those things. We're trying to give people as much information as possible. Juneteenth will be our first really big week of action. We're calling the summer the summer of action. So for those who are listening who want to get involved and volunteer, we make it easy. We make it fun. You can sign up to be a voting squad captain. And then we also have a new HBCU program that we're really excited about called Yes. So we got, we have a lot going and November is six months away. So we don't have time. We don't have time to waste and we need everybody a part of this. Um, And I think we can all see what's happening, what's going on. And I will tell you, there are people who are hoping that you sit out and that you don't pay attention. Yep, exactly. Real quick, Stephanie, why should folks care about midterm elections? Well, look, 90, over 90% of our elections are local elections Mm -hmm. or or state-based elections. So from your governor to your mayor to, you know, the state legislators who make decisions on your reproductive rights, like these are all of the things that are happening within the people who are supporting you at your state and local level. Obviously, there's over 400 members of Congress that are up for re-election. Um, there's some senators that are up for re-election, one senator in Georgia in particular. So this is not the time to sit out. We actually have to go out in even bigger numbers because these are the people who make decisions about literally your everyday life Mm -hmm. and either push agendas forward or stop them. And I think that we've been in a period of like a a holding pattern for so long of progress that, you know, we have to come out in the midterms to ensure that we're able to move this country forward. The last thing I'll say is that there are secretaries of state that are up for re-election. And who are those people? They determine what your election laws look like in your in your state. They also determine if they will certify an election or say that this election is real and, and say, okay, this state gives its X electoral votes to this president. That is going to be so critical for 2024. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that we're electing people that believe in, in democracy and don't pick, you know, politicians over the people. And so what that means is that we have to make sure that we're voting down the ballot. And that is not just us, that we're bringing our friends, our families, our sorority sisters, our church members, you know, our boyfriends, our husbands, whoever. We have to go out as a community and vote. And we know that when we vote together, it increases. So there's there's a lot of ways you can tap into us to ensure that you have the resources that you need, but we're excited to to help you vote this midterm election. Yes. All right. I want to end this out with some quick fire questions real quick. Just give me the first answer that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. What song would people be surprised you know the lyrics to? Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, I would say Lil John and Eastside Boys. What? <laughs> okay. Just any one of those songs. Any anyone? <laughs> well, not anyone. Um, you know, maybe what oof God. Is it who you would get crunk? That one. That one. Uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, one of those. Okay. Would you rather a call or a tap? Um, a call. What's one thing you would tell your 18-year-old self not to worry about? Your future. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best advice you've ever received? Show up as yourself. Mm, Love that. And what book are you looking forward to reading? I'm trying to get through the 1619 Project. I love Nicole Hannah-Jones and all that she's done. She is like a national treasure. And that is the book I'm working on right now. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. I had fun. I learned a lot. I love your journey. And I'm sure a lot of folks listening will find inspiration. Where can folks follow and support you? 
Follow me at S Lynn Young. That is my, that's my handle on Instagram. Unfortunately, Ste- there's too many Stephanie Youngs in the world. So uh, I couldn't have just my name. So Steph L Young also on Twitter. And please make sure you follow all of the When We All Vote accounts on every platform. It's just at When We All Vote. Yay. Thank you. Thank you, Drina, so much.